from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the creator and host of at Serial underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. And again, I want to give a special thanks to my patrons, Sophie, Nanette, Emily, Gabrielle, two Emmas, Galen, Cassandra, David, John, and my girl, Judy. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you. So this podcast is going to be on Herbert Baumeister. Herbert Richard Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. So let's get into some history for that time. This would be the year that India and Pakistan would gain their independence from Great Britain. The coal industry in the United Kingdom was nationalized, which led to increased production and they tried to improve the working conditions of miners by adding benefits, raising wages, and cutting the work week down to five days a week. The Truman Doctrine of the United States Congress was outlined and Truman spoke about the importance of helping secure the democracies of foreign nations that were facing foreign or domestic authoritarian threats. This speech would spark the beginning of the Cold War. Also during this, the U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall also announced the Marshall Plan, which was an urging by Marshall for the United States to help Europe recover from the devastation of World War II. Now the U.S. actually gave over $12 billion to help rebuild Europe. They modernized the region and they helped prevent the spread of communism. This plan was largely successful. And of course, with this kind of topic and true crime situation, we can't go without bringing up the fact that Polaroid land camera was first demonstrated in 1947. It could take and develop a physical black and white photo in just 60 seconds. There were many serial killers we know about today that muchly appreciated this invention. Also this year, Bell Laboratories invented the transistor. The research team of William Shockley, John Bardeen, and Walter Bretain were brought in by Bell Labs to create a solid-state semiconductor switch to replace vacuum tubes in electronics. Bardeen and Bretain invented the very first point-contact transistor. The National Security Act was created this year and President Harry S. Truman signed it into law. 
The act facilitated a major restructuring of the U.S. military with the creation of the Department of Defense after World War II. This was a helpful tool for presidents to coordinate and consult on foreign policy issues during the Cold War. Also this year, the United Nations voted in favor of the creation of an independent Jewish state of Israel. The UN Special Committee on Palestine recommended the partition of Palestine into two separate states, one Arab and one Jewish. There were also hurricanes in southeast Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, 50 separate forest fires in Maine, a tornado in Oklahoma that killed well over 100 people, an earthquake in Chile killing well over 200 people, and a major strike in France that closed the Paris subway. And finally, some notable people also born in 1947. We have Hillary Clinton, the David Bowie, Tom Clancy, Farrah Fawcett, Elton John, David Letterman, Arnold Schwarzenegger, O.J. Simpson, and the master himself, yes, Stephen King. So this was the atmosphere that Herbert was born into. Herbert's parents were Herbert Baumeister Sr. and Elizabeth Schmidt. Herbert Sr. was born in Ohio in 1920. His father was born in Germany and his mother was from Missouri. This would have been Herb's grandparents. Herbert Sr. did well in school and went on to work as an anesthesiologist. Elizabeth was born in 1923. Herbert Sr. and Elizabeth met and they got married in December of 1945. Herbert Jr. was their first child, followed by Barbara in 1948, Brad in 1954, and then Richard in 1956. They were, by all accounts, a very typical, respectable, middle-class family, said that they were very well-liked, and by all outward appearances seemed to be completely normal. The parents watched over their children, doled out acceptable levels of discipline, and loved their children very much. There were no instances of child abuse or neglect that I found whatsoever. And yet, if you truly dig, you find these stories coming out of his childhood that are quite troubling. In elementary school, it is said that little Herb happened to find a dead crow somewhere along the road, and he brought it to school with him, placing it on his teacher's desk, supposedly to see what response that he would get from her about it. And yet another instance from his earlier childhood was that he asked some of his classmates what it might be like to drink one's own urine. It was also around this time that his family moved to a more affluent neighborhood known as Washington Township, a suburb of northern Indianapolis. Now, moving did nothing to help Herb's attitudes and behaviors, and in fact, he seemed to become rather obsessive about things that anyone else would find repulsive or disgusting. It is said that he urinated on a teacher's desk and developed a rather macabre sense of humor. 
His peers were completely horrified by him as Herb seemed to lose his ability to be able to tell right from wrong. The other kids steered quite clear of him, even the children that were normally prone to disciplinary issues. He would often interrupt his teachers. He was disruptive and would explode into anger at times. The teachers, of course, contacted his parents to report what they had seen and to ask for advice or just help. But you see, his parents were already quite aware of their son's seemingly downward spiral. So Herbert Sr. took his son for a full medical evaluation. The results of this test stated that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and having a, quote, two or more sided personality base, unquote. Now, we know a lot more now compared to back when he was tested because we know that people with schizophrenia might have difficulty distinguishing between what is real and what isn't, have lost touch with reality, as they say, but they don't have more than one personality or what we know today as dissociative identity disorder. But the biggest takeaway from this is that there does not seem to be any records whatsoever that Herb was treated for any of this. Now, back then, the normal form of treatment for schizophrenia was ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, and many were also institutionalized. According to an article in ThoughtCo, quote, it was an accepted practice to shock unruly patients several times a day, not with hopes of curing them, but of making them more manageable for hospital staff, unquote. So that could be a reason as to why his parents didn't seek treatment, but that's mere speculation. He did go on to complete junior high, and he went on to high school at North Central in 1961. This was a large public school on the north side of Indianapolis and had a celebrated athletic department. The athletes themselves were, of course, the most popular kids, and Herb wanted to be accepted by them. He did everything he knew to do to become part of their group, but his overall creepy manner turned them off and he was rejected over and over again. For him, he wanted to be in the popular group, so it was either be in that group or have no friends at all. So you can guess which way he went. Now he managed to maintain at least average grades and was described as pedantic, which for my non-English speaking friends, this is a word used to describe someone who annoys others by correcting small errors, caring too much about minor details, and being an all-around know-it-all. So, Herb spent the rest of his high school career as a loner. One student who knew him stated he also seemed to not have any interest in dating either. He was never seen walking around with a significant other. He did manage to graduate from high school in 1965. And that's his childhood, so let's get into it. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of detailed information about his very early years, but we get the sense that he had a very typical, if not privileged, early life. His father worked in the medical field, and due to there being no information about his mother, it becomes reasonable to assume that she was a homemaker, which would have been very typical for the times. 
He was the oldest child out of four, and it is said that your birth order does shape your personality, but I think in Herb's case, it doesn't really count. And though we can't be 100% sure, it seems reasonable to assume that there was no maltreatment in the home whatsoever. Common discipline, no neglect, no abuse, nothing of the sort. And yet we see that he developed a curiosity of sorts about macabre things. Picking up a dead bird and placing it on the teacher's desk is not a common behavior in children. While some are fascinated by dead animals and others repulsed, wanting to see how the teacher would react to a dead animal on her desk is over a line. And while it is normal for children to be curious about bodily functions, what is outside of normal is telling other children about wondering what urine tastes like. And this wouldn't be the only thing that he would become rather obsessive about and thus turned many of his peers away from him. He also seemed to have a bit of impulse control issues, interrupting teachers, being disruptive, and having an explosive temper. Now, most kids have times when they act without thinking. That's normal. I mean, hell, a lot of adults do. But when children act impulsively, they might get wrongly labeled as careless, mean, or rude. Lack of impulse control kind of looks like doing inappropriate things to get attention, having trouble following rules consistently, being aggressive toward other kids, having trouble waiting their turn in games or during conversation. They might overreact to frustration, disappointment, or criticism. They don't seem to understand the consequences of their actions or how their words and actions affect others and they tend to take a lot more risks. Now, there are some different reasons for impulse behavior. Lack of sleep, which I don't think Herb suffered with. Immaturity, which could be an issue here, but we just don't know. And in others, it could be ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which we've talked about quite a bit. There are also mood disorders that can lead to impulsive behaviors in children. But regardless, it was obvious that something was wrong with little Herbert. So his very loving and doting father took him in for testing as good and concerned parents do. The diagnosis was schizophrenia. While I didn't find his exact age for this diagnosis, it was prior to high school. Now, childhood schizophrenia is an uncommon but often severe mental disorder in which children interpret reality abnormally, according to the Mayo Clinic. It involves a range of problems with cognition, behavior, or emotions. It can result in a number of combinations of hallucinations, delusions, and extremely disordered thinking and behavior that impairs the child's ability to function. Some early indications of childhood schizophrenia include language delays, late or unusual crawling, late walking, abnormal motor behavior such as rocking or arm flapping. My research did not uncover any of these symptoms, at least in him, but these could also be signs of autism spectrum disorder, which was not as widely understood back when Herb was a child. 
Later signs and symptoms in children include delusions and hallucinations, disorganized thinking, extremely disorganized and negative symptoms such as lack of personal hygiene or lack of emotion and so on. Again, this doesn't really seem to match what we know about Herb. Now, it's not my place to diagnose. I certainly don't have a PhD, but I'll leave it up to the professionals or any of you guys to speculate what might have been going on with him. We do know that he was desperate to fit in with the cool athlete kids in high school, but it appeared that they wanted nothing to do with him. So he was, for the most part, a complete loner. He maintained average grades, but outside of that, there didn't seem to be anything remarkable about him whatsoever. Herb being described as pedantic would also turn many of his peers away from him as well. I mean, who really likes a know-it-all? But let's get back into the story. In 1965, Herb enrolled at and attended Indiana University, and he chose anatomy as his major. He wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and become a doctor. But sources say he was just as directionless as he had always been. He displayed odd behavior and was again the social outcast, so he dropped out in his first semester. He did return a couple of times to try to continue on with his degree, but he never finished. What he did manage to accomplish during this time in college was that he met an education and journalism student, Juliana Sater. She was a high school journalism teacher and a part-time college student. They found out pretty quickly that they shared very deeply conservative political views as well as an entrepreneurial spirit, both wanting to own their own businesses someday, and they quickly began to date. Now, Herb's father was a very well-respected man who was getting impatient with his son's aimlessness and persistently tried to get his son a job at the Indianapolis Star, which is, or at least was, a highly respected major newspaper, and they finally agreed to hire him as a copyboy. One of his colleagues stated that the young man was, quote, sensitive as to the way he was viewed and treated by the higher-ups. He obsessively wanted to be somebody, unquote. He was remembered as dressing quite well and was obviously eager, but again, he just really didn't fit in. So one story goes that Herb, trying to include himself, offered to drive some guys to the Indiana University football game that he worked with. The men agreed, but then the day came and apparently Herb showed up in a hearse, which for those that might not know what that is, it is literally the vehicle that transports the casket to the gravesite. So the men piled in and Herb drove them with all of the lights going. He was laughing the whole way there. The colleagues said, quote, people started pulling off the road. He even wore a chauffeur's cap. He thought it was kind of funny, unquote. But needless to say, the others were not impressed. Not too long after, Herb began working at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and word around the campfire was that his father had gotten him this job as well. 
Only her began screaming and raving at the other employees with no provocation, but he wasn't fired. His behavior was described as odd at this job as well, even sending a Christmas card out to coworkers where there was a picture of him and another guy dressed in drag, which for the late 60s was considered pretty taboo. But this particular job suited him for the most part. Senior employees thought he had a great work attitude and thought him to be highly intelligent and was eventually given the title of the program director. But rather than the reaction that one might expect from this title, his antics and random outbursts actually increased. He reportedly urinated on the boss's desk, and yet somehow he wasn't fired for that. Then he supposedly urinated on a letter that was to be sent to the governor of Indiana himself. In November of 1971, 24-year-old Herb married Juliana. She then quit her job as a high school journalism teacher so that they could begin a family and she wanted to be home. And at this point, Herb was making pretty good money. And then about six months into the marriage, Herb seemed to have a mental breakdown over some car problems, fairly minor car problems. And his father had him committed to a mental institution for two months. When asked, Julia stated that Herb was just, quote, hurting and needed help, unquote. She loved him and stayed with him regardless. There, he was diagnosed as having compulsive personality disorder, which we now know of as obsessive compulsive personality disorder, characterized by pervasive preoccupation with orderliness, perfection, and control with zero flexibility. So in 1979, the couple had their first child, Marie. Their son Eric was born in 81, and another daughter Emily in 84. Juliana would later go on to say that she and Herb were intimate a total of six times in the 25 years that they were married. The gossip surrounding him was that he was a closeted gay man and also quite mentally disturbed. In 1985, he was finally fired from his job and Juliana was forced to go back to work. During this time, Herb was actually a stay-at-home dad and his kids all later said that he was a devoted and loving father. But Herb was becoming restless and though Juliana was apparently not aware of it, he began to drink heavily and hang out in the gay bars. But outside of that, Herb's life seemed pretty good. He took his wife and children to spend time in his parents' lakeside condo, which was around two and a half hours north of Indianapolis. They boated around and they rode on jet skis. When he had the money, he spoiled his children greatly. And then he was arrested for drunk driving after getting into an accident where he hit someone and then he fled. A year after that, he was arrested again for being a party to insurance fraud. He was, however, acquitted of these charges. Sometime after this, Herb's father died. Herb was then working for a thrift shop and immediately saw the potential for impressive profits in this line of work. 
Juliana and Herb borrowed $4,000 from his mother, and in 1988, the couple opened Save-A-Lot Thrift, along with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, which was a charity to help local families. Now, this thrift shop sold, of course, secondhand things like clothes and housewares and so on. I know I love going to thrift shops and flea markets myself. I love it. The inventory technically belonged to the charity, which then was given a percentage of the profits. Needless to say, the store was a success and the couple garnered a lot of praise from the charity as well. In its first year, Save-A-Lot earned $50,000, which was excellent for those days. And it wasn't long before the couple opened a second store. So again, things seem to be going quite well for her, but that's not why we're here, is it? Within the Indianapolis gay community, which is described as was and still is quite close-knit, it was not going unnoticed that several young men had either disappeared completely or were found dead. It seemed to have started in 1985 when 17-year-old Eric Roker's body was found abandoned along a roadside. He had left his home one morning in May to go to a job interview and was never seen alive again. I believe that he had been strangled to death. Then in 1989, another body was found along I-70 east of Indianapolis. The victim was 26-year-old Stephen Elliott. Two years later, another victim, 32-year-old Clay Boatman's remains were found alongside a road between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. And actually, during a 10-year span, at minimum, nine other bodies of young men were found between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. And then in 1991, the murdered victims found along the roads just stopped. But there was good reason for that. That same year, Herb and Juliana bought a new home, a large and lavish house sitting on 18 and a half acres of land that they called Fox Hollow Farm. It was a horse farm. It was outside of the big city and both were excited to give their children that much room to play and grow. Their children were excelling in their private schools and the businesses were thriving. And yet young gay men were still turning up missing from the downtown Indianapolis scene. Two young men disappeared in May of 93, two more in July, and then one in August. It was at this point that people began to suspect there was a serial killer on the loose. In 1994, three more young men went missing and their families reported them as missing, but the police really didn't have anything to go on. Now, one of the victim's families decided to hire a private detective because they weren't satisfied with the police investigation. The private detective put up missing posters, contacted the police to get what information they actually had, and had interviewed quite a few men from the gay bars. All had a commonality. They had been last seen in one of those bars and they all disappeared during warmer months, but that's about all they had in the beginning. Also during this time, Herb and Juliana's marriage began to fall apart. 
Herb, for the most part, stopped treating her as a wife and more like an employee. He screamed at her for supposedly no reason and to try to keep the peace, she just sort of took the back seat to most all things. Their ranch slowly began to deteriorate. The house wasn't kept clean and the lush, beautiful grounds became overgrown and full of weeds. Now, one area that Herb really did care about was the pool house. Herb kept the bar in the indoor pool, fully stocked with alcohol and lavishly decorated the building, including mannequins that he positioned and dressed to make it seem like there was always a pool party going on. His wife and children found it strange and would often leave to visit Herb's mother in the condo at the lake. Herb would tell them that he was just going to stay at home and run the stores. Because sure. It is said that in 1994, Herb's then 13-year-old son Eric found a partially buried human skeleton and immediately went and got his mother to show. She, of course, showed Herb when he got home, who explained it away by saying that his father had practiced on cadavers and that he had found it in the garage and he decided to bury it. Somehow, this satisfied Juliana. And as successful as their business had become, it also started losing money. Herb was day drinking heavily and treating employees horribly. Now, unbeknownst to his wife, Herb frequented the gay bars at night, returning home very late and then spending hours crying, quote, like a child about his failing business. At this same time, the private investigator crossed paths with a man who went by the name of Tony Harris, stating that he had seen one of the victims leave with a man and he tried to tell the police that this man was the serial killer, but he believed that the police didn't take him seriously. Tony described the man as tall and quite thin and was not a talker, but he also stood out because of the fact that he stared at the missing persons posters in the bars just entirely too long. Now, Tony, suspecting this man, took a leap of faith and struck up a conversation with him. The man introduced himself as Brian Smart, and though he seemed to not want to talk about the disappearances, he did invite Tony to go out with him that night. Brian, quote unquote, stated he was a landscape artist from Ohio, living in an empty house in town. He asked Tony if he would like to go there for a drink and a swim. Tony reluctantly agreed. Brian took Tony north through the suburbs and out into the more affluent area. Brian then pulled up into Fox Hollow Farms. Brian took him to the pool house where Tony immediately noticed the very odd decor. Brian explained the mannequins away, stating he got lonely and they were his company. Tony refused the drink that Brian had actually offered him, and immediately Tony said that Brian's mood changed. I mean, are you getting the Jeffrey Dahmer vibes the same as me? At any rate, Tony did go for a swim, and then Brian reportedly said to him, quote, I just learned this really neat trick. If you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great. You really get a great rush." Unquote. Brian grabbed a hose that was laying beside the pool. 
Quote, you just want to pinch these two veins, he continued, indicating the carotid arteries in his own neck. Quote, and it's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working. Unquote. Brian stripped naked. He laid down on a couch in the corner of the room and told Tony to pull the hose around his neck while he pleasured himself. Once he was done, Tony, for some reason, allowed Brian to do the same to him. Only Brian was pulling so tight that Tony could feel the blood pressure increasing in his head, so he pretended to go unconscious. But he didn't pretend to be unconscious for long because Brian started shaking him, and so he had to wake up. And then he began shouting at Brian, quote, Is this what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he one of your accidents? Were there others? Unquote. So much to Tony's dismay, Brian did not confess. Instead, he just grinned, finding the whole game amusing. Not long after, Brian's speech became slurred and he fell asleep. Tony used this opportunity to go into the main house and try to find out Brian's real identity. It was glaringly obvious that this was a family home, that Brian's family home. Brian did manage to wake up and somehow Tony was able to convince him to drive him back into the city. And he made Tony promise that they would have another date. So Tony worked with a private investigator who agreed to follow the men once they met up again the next week, but Brian never showed. It was literally a year later that Tony and Brian just happened to be in the same bar. So Tony got his license plate number and it was determined that the car belonged to a Herbert Baumeister. Detectives went to Herb's store to tell him that he was suspected in the disappearance of many young men and asked if they could search his home, which he of course refused. He told them that any and all further communication could go through his lawyer. It was at this point that it seemed Herb suffered an emotional breakdown over the course of a few months. The Children's Bureau canceled their contract with Save-A-Lot and the couple faced going through bankruptcy. Juliana then filed for divorce, still haunted by that skeleton that they found on the property. In June of 1996, law enforcement reportedly walked through a grassy area next to the back patio of Herb's home because his wife had alerted the police after Herb took one of their sons on a trip north to visit his mother. Now, as the law enforcement took a closer look, what they thought had been small pebbles and rocks turned out to be human bone fragments. Forensics then confirmed it. The next day, the excavation began and they found bones literally everywhere, even on the neighbor's land. In the early stages of the search, they found 5,500 bone fragments and teeth. Some of the bones were burned and broken. Others were in whole, large pieces. They estimated it to be from around 11 different men, though only four were definitively identified. 
At this point, Herb was up visiting his mother, as I said, and was unaware that his wife had agreed to this search. Herb was served kind of emergency situation, custody papers demanding their youngest son who was with him to be immediately returned to Juliana. And he didn't turn him over without incident. They were scared of what he might do once all of this hit the news. Now, once this discovery did hit the news, Herb went on the run. On July 3rd, 1996, he was found inside his car at a park in Ontario, Canada. He had shot himself in the head and died. He did leave a three-page suicide note stating why he killed himself, mostly saying things like he was upset about his failing business and his failing marriage. However, he did not say one word, make one little mention of any of the murders that he was suspected of. So, he was never tried, never officially convicted, but the evidence is rather damning. So, do we have a case of someone who was born to kill? I see no evidence in the information I found that would indicate he was anything other than that. No abuse. No neglect, no serious childhood trauma, no head injuries, nothing in the usual list of things that might better explain why he became a serial killer. And yes, of course, he was most likely gay during a time when it really wasn't widely accepted like it is now, but still, there is no excuse. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment on the YouTube video if you're watching or... If not, you can leave me a DM on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing. Feel free to email me at SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening or watching. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. I hope you guys have a great day. Thank you.